0: Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, a frank discussion of what happens when cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is episode one, and I am your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. This is our inaugural episode. And for new listeners, also known as everyone, I wanted to give a little background on what we're going to cover on this podcast. There have been countless articles, marketing slicks, and breathless descriptions of what is possible with the cloud. For the better part of a decade, you've been told that the cloud is rainbows and puppies and that every day is your birthday. So you've bought into the promises. You've mapped out a vision on a whiteboard. You forecasted the benefits for IT in the business, and now the real work begins. How well does that reality match the design? What happens the first time something crashes? How do you handle shifting demands, changing requirements, and security concerns all running on bleeding edge technology? Those are the things that I would like to investigate and delve more into with this podcast. And for our very first episode, we have a fantastic guest. I would like to welcome to the show Tim Warner, a Pluralsight author, Microsoft Cloud and Data Center MVP, and Azure Solutions Consultant. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks a lot, Ned. It's an honor to be here, especially for your inaugural episode. <laughs> Thank you. So why don't you tell, I mean, I already gave a little introduction, but why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Sure thing. Nutshell history.
1: Nutshell history. Well, I've been in um, IT full-time since 1997, and I've always blended training with actual IT work. For me, that's my gift. That's my specialty. So I've, like I said, been in the industry for a while, and currently I work full-time for Pluralsight as a staff author. And as you mentioned in my introduction, I've started a consulting business essentially through word of mouth around my training. Uh, one hazard, and you know this being a site trainer yourself, is that you need to actually be able to do what you teach. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit helpful. So the consulting work has been a fantastic way to take uh, a lot of the, you know, theory and and actually make it real practice to the benefit of all. So I've specialized in cloud in general and Azure in particular over the last handful of years. And one reason I love the cloud so much is that it's almost impossible to get bored. You find that too, (laughs) Nat, there's so many toys to play with.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Every every new service that gets introduced has so many nerd knobs that you could Mm -hmm. never get bored uh, working on it. But that can also be a pitfall too and i think that lends well into into introducing kind of what uh what we're talking about in this episode so you uh, assisted a, a company with an azure deployment so why don't you set up uh you know in this first half of the of the podcast let's set up what's the design what was the business purpose some of some of the details about this project
1: okay this is a small business that I mean, really, very small business, really, almost running out of the guy's garage, (laughs) where he found a really excellent niche. He, Banking, just in general, we'll just call it banking finance. He knows the industry and the subject matter super, super well through his previous career. And he also is an expert c programmer, so he designed this line of business application that serves this particular market center. And his goal was at a better price point with better performance and more compliance, you know, all the typical subject-oriented stuff. Right. So the actual application is, uh, was a .NET standard web application that used SQL Server on the back end, just a straight .NET stack web app. And his deployment model originally was a suite of virtual machines. So the idea is he would work with a new customer, and if they decided to sign on for this line of business app, he and his small team would work in conjunction with the customer's IT department to deploy and integrate the VMs into their environment. And the client discovered before too long that not many businesses for security reasons, for bureaucratic reasons, and, you know, just IT raising, hey, wait a minute, you're giving us these IT, these VMs, and we're now responsible for managing them. He just saw that it wasn't really workable. So his main driver into the public cloud, and he thought of Azure naturally because of his .NET focus, was maybe if we can centralize the environment maybe just have a pack of VMs ready to go as templates or something that he could hydrate multiple times for new customers and take some of the administrative burden off of the customer's IT department. So that's where we, where I came into the picture.
0: Right. So, I mean, the application we're talking about here, to, to uncover it a little bit, you said it's .NET, so it's just running the standard uh, web app that's built in .NET, and then it has a SQL Server backend. Um, and, you know, deployed on traditional virtual machines initially. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty traditional type application. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I guess to, to people who are not super experienced in the cloud, their first thought would probably be, hey, I'm going to take this thing and spin it up as virtual machines in mm-hmm. Azure and just offer that out to clients. So that was basically his initial thought process?
1: That's right, exactly. There's one wrinkle in the, the, in the source environment. Instead of, because um, my first question was, what's the client side? What are your customers actually using? And I assumed it was going to be through a presentation layer, a web front end. But sure. interestingly, he decided to go for a Windows Presentation Foundation desktop application streamed using the click once deployment method. And the reason for that is that he felt the richness he could give and it wasn't even so much a performance thing as it was the controls that he was using in the application. He felt that they just worked a lot better, like being able to display nested uh, spreadsheet tables and this kind of stuff. So he understood that You know, if he wants to do IT the way that the the industry trend has gone, you get most flexibility with just a web client. But he did have that limit, that does have that limitation. So it's a WPF click once app. But yeah, getting back to Azure, he just initially thought, naturally, I would assume, based on his experience, that we're going to do a, quote, lift and shift and then run the environment entirely as virtual machines, Mm -hmm. And I saw that as my first opportunity to deliver real value to this business because I said to him, what are your thoughts about platform as a service using, for instance, Azure app service for your web tier and maybe even for API access and hosted database, maybe Azure SQL database for the data tier. And he had never his understanding of Azure at the time was pretty low. So Mm -hmm. it never even occurred to him to think of platform rather than infrastructure services.
0: Right. That's certainly something that I know I've encountered a lot is users kind of think of Azure or AWS or whatever public cloud is just another data center. Mm -hmm. And and that's how they want to deploy and then operate and manage going forward. And so what you were suggesting is actually taking advantage of some of the more advanced services that exist in Azure. Um, Did he bite on that or was he resistant? What was some of the uh, reasons that you gave for, for going down that path?
1: Well, he was initially resistant because of the giving up of control. As you know, when you embrace a platform solution like App Service, you're surrendering the full stack access you have to the underlying VMs, which you would have in virtual machines on a virtual network. But it was really a case of me just showing him. And to his great credit, he invested a lot of time and effort. And I guess this is a shout out to Pluralsight, although (laughs) I don't mean it that way. He was a Pluralsight subscriber and he dove into the training there in order to get smart on public cloud in general and Azure, IaaS, and PaaS in particular. So it was a combination of me just first shining the light that these services exist, encouraging him to learn on his own, and ultimately showing him what really turned the lights on in his head was when I showed him uh, migrating a SQL server database into Azure SQL. And then with a line of PowerShell or a couple clicks of the mouse being able to geo-replicate that, that just... Magical (laughs) is the word that I would (laughs) use. Yep.
0: Um Yep. yeah, I, I, that's certainly been, uh, the case when I've shown, uh, users how easy it is to set up something like database as a service or, or um, Azure site recovery or something similar mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. oh, you just get DR done. There it is. Um, yeah, they, 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 their jaws kind of hit the floor. Sometimes you mm-hmm. got to scoop it up and be like, no, that's really, that's all you have to do is click that button. Um, so that's great. So tell me about the initial deployment. That, that very first uh, uh, design that was deployed for the environment.
1: Yeah. Well, he wanted to get a proof of concept available to show to customers sure. like yesterday. But <laughs> <laughs> so while we were hashing out the pros uh, and cons of platform services, we did go ahead and create an environment using virtual machines and a virtual network. And again, for him, it was a great learning curve exercise because um, this particular customer is a C-sharp developer. So he was, by definition, really weak with infrastructure stuff. Sure. And same with his team. They were all developers, and they were all super sharp on dev, and they knew their subject matter cold, but they needed a lot of remediation, understanding, networking. And that, again, was a driver in favor of platform. Because as you know, IaaS, it's high stakes with virtual machines. If you just throw the VMs up there and turn them on, you could be exposing yourself to catastrophic security issues.
0: Oh, yeah. Especially if you give them all public IPs and you haven't secured your admin password Mm -hmm. properly. And Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, pitfalls that you can easily fall into when you're using IaaS. Um, Mm -hmm. I like to think PaaS kind of adds some guardrails to, to things and kind of steers you in the proper direction. Uh, mm-hmm. You can still, I mean, you can still mess up, but it's a little harder.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as far as the behavior of the line of business app as VMs, I mean, it really functioned the same as it did in his local environment. It's just, I mean, you can't get a more Azure friendly environment than a straight ahead .NET stack application, you know? But of course, besides the security implications and training them up about like what you said, which VMs actually need a public IP, shouldn't we use some other method? I mean, and that that invokes all sorts of additional costs because he's calculating in his head, as he should, how much an environment is going to cost each month with or without a VPN required. So he's thinking in terms of passing that on to the customer, which you kind of have to do, and also trying to minimize the impact on the customer. I mean, a VPN could be a heavy lift for a a smaller customer. So it was becoming clear, fortunately. He was was realizing, yeah, this is going to be potentially a lot more expensive than I thought, and then how do we quickly rehydrate this environment as I bring new customers online?
0: Sure. And I just a question about the, the customer. So is this, would it be like a multi-tenant setup or would he be deploying a a new environment for each customer that comes along? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. We've discussed that and I'm not, we're not done working together. I I would imagine that in time we'll have a more cloud native architecture, but it's been a, a slow, evolution for various reasons as, as we've discussed learning curve being part of it. Mm-hmm. So at the moment there's limited multi-tenancy. There is a, um, an app that, um, each customer can log into a central app for like meta management, et cetera. But by and large, it's a separate environment for each customer. And you know, that might have to be separate because of the compliance and finance and regulations and all of that stuff that I'm grateful. I don't have to worry about (laughs) (laughs) at two degree, too much of a degree of depth. Right. (laughs) So um, turning, turning the person on to app service was pretty easy when I showed how, trivial it is, honestly, to deploy into app service directly from Visual Studio, say. Um, And this particular customer is is willing to look at more contemporary software development practices like CI and CD and um, DevOps, but he really hadn't gone beyond just basic source control. So we started looking at, you know, using GitHub or a local Git repository that's part of app service. So when he saw that he didn't really have to learn a whole new mechanism, the the app service provided great conveniences for him as a developer. And I know it's right out of the Microsoft marketing language, but (laughs) it's true that it allows the developer to focus on his or her code almost exclusively and let Microsoft handle a lot of the infrastructure heavy lifting. Sure. So,
0: that was the plan was to you know do that p o c and then start moving stuff into the the more platform as a service moving into let's call the reality the day two mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of things uh, I'm curious is there something that's running in production today, something that's actually deployed that that customers are using
1: Yes, there is yeah okay. he's he's built the environment he continues to um develop the environment for for portability and just keeping the app as future-proof as possible, he refactored mm-hmm. it to use .NET Core, which is cool.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, so what drove that decision?
1: Curious. Uh, just, in, I think more than anything else, the idea of um, trying to future-proof his app. He was concerned that with Microsoft's emphasis now on .NET Core, that Gradually, pieces of .NET standard will deprecate or dead end, and he'll be forced to refactor anyway. So I think he, <laughs> his idea was just to try to get ahead of the curve in that regard. Yeah, He did have some issues in terms of customers who use Macs because... To my knowledge, the click once those WPF apps are not cross-platform. So there was some we had some discussions about how best to serve those customers. I think they wound up having to use a hypervisor to mm. to get to the app, you know, VMware Fusion or VirtualBox or whatever. Sure.
0: Well that's interesting. because um, mm-hmm. I didn't I keep thinking in my head, oh, you know, this is just a web app. Uh, but then yeah, right, you keep reminding me, right. no, there's, there's a thick client involved here. Yeah. I don't know if I want to call it a thick client, but there's a client app involved in this whole process that has to be able to connect back and has to be able to run dot net core properly.
1: Yeah. 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 He, he really holds on to that app and it is lovely and it is performant. I, I sure he he would say himself if he were on the podcast that he understands the way to go mm-hmm. um, is going to be a web client, but he just loves those those controls. I think they're Teleric. He just loves the okay. data controls. Yeah, the, yeah, I've run into them
0: a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was what what's actually deployed today uh, and running in Azure? Is it the App Service uh, or is it still virtual machines?
1: Right. He's deploying the application from a virtual machine, so he has a, effectively a, a management VM running in a virtual network still. Okay. But all of the customers connect in to um, – there's two web apps per customer. There's a web app that's the, um, and an API app. Okay. Um, the web app, I believe, is just like a customer portal the api app is programmatic access and just back-end plumbing the click once app comes from the virtual machine the management vm that's on the virtual network and the data tier each customer has their own azure sql database and we could probably talk about that some more because any customer worth its salt is going to want to know about high availability and that was another thing how what kind of service level agreement to offer the customers based on what Microsoft gives. And the answer to that was pretty easy. It's just the replication, being able to geo-replicate the database to another Azure region and then you know make that a selling point of the application, that even mm-hmm. if an entire Azure region were to go dark, the data is still available in the secondary region.
0: Okay. And uh, in terms of that Azure uh, SQL, if I remember correctly, you enable that uh, replication per database, right? Is that correct? Right. Okay. Right. So if a customer didn't want the replication, in theory, they could pay a little mm-hmm. less and, and not mm-hmm. have that protection.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's pretty cool. And the same thing applies to the the web tier. You know, being able to have a second instance of it running, that would involve some additional parts and pieces to have the web tier in two regions. You'd need a, a traffic manager profile on, in front of that. Sure. Um, other issues, just learning curve issues plumbing issues, housekeeping issues with the web apps, the domain issue, what domain is being used. Rather than horse around with customers and their own DNS and their own domains, then (laughs) we decided on the DNS pattern of company name dot and then his company dot whatever. You see what I mean? The subdomain, in other words. Very similar
0: to the way that Slack does it, where everything is slack.com, but your workspace is company name or or whatever at .slack.com.
1: Yep, precisely.
0: Makes a lot of sense.
1: So that involved our discussions on what kind of certificate. Do you you want to do a wildcard certificate? Do you want to do the SNI with the discrete host names? I said, look, you want this to scale. Hopefully you're going to have N number of customers um, a wild card's going to be infinitely preferable to having to hard code names as you go forget that no so that was a you know pretty easy decision as far as the ssl tls but you know some gotchas at that time when we started working together and i'm sure you know this um, it didn't the app service didn't force https mm-hmm. so even if you had a certificate you could potentially do http now that's a lot easier to enforce but, you know, a lot of those little gotchas along the way, that's where a consultant, I think, can really be beneficial to proactively spot some of these pain points and gotchas and remediate them on the front end rather than realize, oh, wait, this isn't behaving the way that we expected while it's being used. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah knowing knowing someone who knows some of those gotchas and that's kind of what i'm hoping to do with this podcast as well is mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. get the information out there some and get those gotchas lessons learned uh in people's hands so they can make more intelligent and informed decisions when they're developing their cloud deployments um yep. so uh we talked a little bit about i guess the app service and mm-hmm. azure sql um from a networking perspective um i don't think that app service supports VPN. So how are our clients just connecting over a, a public IP right today? Is that how they're doing it?
1: Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. They connect to their client portal just over HTTPS. So there's mm-hmm. no overhead of a VPN or certainly not an express route connection necessary. <laughs> so that's convenient. Yeah. Um, the app service can tie into a virtual network nowadays with a number of different methods. So I forgot what it, what it's called, hybrid connection or something or other. So you've got yeah. easy, connect, secure connectivity from the portal, from uh, the API app to the virtual network if communication needs to happen between the management VM and one of the web apps.
0: Sure. Um, I know I think you can designate a subnet in mm-hmm. Azure VNets now mm-hmm. and associate and like app service with that subnet yeah. and that's where it gets sort of a connection endpoint mm-hmm. into your internal vnet if i'm i think i'm remembering that correctly that's yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty
1: right. recent <laughs> or even there's an, a newer feature yet where you can just have a single port channel oh okay. any server it doesn't even have to be in azure it could be in your on premises environment and it's just that single port so it's like a little umbilical cord i really admire the Microsoft development teams, how they're taking advantage of the strong security boundary that the virtual network provides. You can tie so many Azure services into a VNet nowadays, and I think it's a great thing. Yeah, it's been interesting
0: to watch how both Azure and AWS have slowly added, Mm -hmm. um, you know, internal network endpoints for all of their platform as a service uh, and and the way that they're approaching it. And each, each one's a little bit different. And I think about There's a lot of, uh, technical complexity that goes into exposing only one small component of your shared service to Mm -hmm. this virtual network. I, Mm -hmm. the the software defined networking powering that has got to be very sophisticated.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I agree.
0: Uh, in terms of migrating, so I guess he had existing customers, were there any issues or gotchas running the migration process from their current deployment to the new environments?
1: Um, let me see. Other than at that time, there weren't an awful lot of customers to migrate. And okay. it's been a while yeah. since we did it. I think it was just a question of understanding, making clear, he made clear with the customer once he got obtained their buy-in that they were willing to do the cloud solution, that there would be some impact on availability while he cut them over. But what's cool about this particular business is it's pretty much in that time zone, business hours. Mm -hmm. So he, he could cut them over to the cloud environment over the weekend, for instance, or overnight. So no, I don't remember for those few existing customers were there were at the beginning that the cutover was too big of an issue fortunately okay uh, in terms
0: of updating the application mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. what's the what's the process that's in place uh, today and and what what are some of the issues that maybe uh, you ran into um, putting that code update process in place
1: well um, because He's using click once for the client bits, the actual engine that the user uses for 90 plus percent of their work. Um, As he commits new code, makes changes, I think that there's a check that click once happens every time the user starts. It checks with the source whether there's a newer build and it comes down. I'm not a developer myself, so those details are a little abstracted from me, but that's my understanding. As far as what the users actually interact with, the desktop app, Mm -hmm. the update process is pretty seamless, and he seems to like that. Um, The developer does that, is and I would too, I would imagine. It seems like a pretty clean and convenient way to do it if you do have to use a desktop app,
0: you know? Right. And the uh, the backend, the app service, uh, how is that Mm -hmm. updated? Does he have like a development environment that it rolls through? Mm -hmm. uh, Right, good
1: question. Yeah, that was something that really impressed the customer when I demonstrated deployment slots, for instance. Being able to have multiple instances of your application and then swap among those different environments. Your sandbox or your dev environment, your test QA, and then your production or release one yeah definitely so we've got um i think just the two environments because it's a relatively small shop actually okay so i guess qa testing and all that is done in the dev slot and then when it's necessary or when he's ready you can do a slot swap say that five times quickly (laughs) to exchange the environments
0: (laughs) very cool uh in terms of monitoring, I'm sure he yeah. needs to keep you know, track of some metrics, make sure the application's mm-hmm. up. Um, have there been any issues mm-hmm. or, or hiccups with monitoring, and, and how is monitoring being done?
1: Yeah, there is an issue with that right now, as a matter of fact. Um, because it's a desktop app, I'm, my understanding, I hope I'm wrong on this, but at last check, my understanding was Application Insights, the, the web app, telemetry monitoring platform in Azure is not available for WPF desktop apps. Mm, What what he's used is something called hockey app. And the issue seems to be, it looks like Microsoft is sunsetting hockey app. They are. Yeah, I did see that. (laughs) So that may wipe out um, the monitoring and telemetry, and force this customer to move faster. In fact, let me make a note to follow up on him about that. <laughs> this is live stuff. That this is live work we're talking about today. It's
0: real world people.
1: <laughs> real world. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, would it? I, I guess the way that Hockey app works, I assume, is that you put some hooks in the code to mm-hmm. report back telemetry uh, of the app as it's running on the desktop. Does that sound? Reasonable, yeah. Okay, yeah,
1: that's...
0: so I, I would think that I know I don't know if App Insights has those same code hooks that you can put into oh. a WPF app. That's no, yeah, a, I don't think so. That's certainly a consideration, especially for anybody who's planning to deploy out a, a client based app. Is how do I pull that telemetry and and performance data back to help inform my next cycle of development? Um, so I guess hey. If, you, if, you, if you've got an answer, let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say I will, Ned. I'll follow up with you via email or Twitter or Slack or whatever cool. once we decide because, you know, it's a good addendum to our discussion today. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to make sure to mention cost, if I could, and what we've done to try to optimize cost. And, you know, especially when you're developing a line of business app that you're then licensing to customers, the idea of predictable recurring cost is super important, because customers aren't going to want to see you change their price (laughs) very often, if at all. So um, initially, when the customers saw the VM farm and just potentially how expensive that was going to be, that led us to look at platform services, which were much more reasonable. And he thought, well, with VMs, you can dynamically scale them up and scale them down, and you can even switch them off. Can we do something similar with app service? It's like, yeah, you can through the app service plan. You can scale up and down, but you've got a little less flexibility than you might think because different features are unlocked at different levels. You get N number of deployment slots or this, that, and the other. So be careful about we're not going to be able to scale down beyond the features that we're using, number one. And number two, the Azure SQL database, he thought, geez, in this line of business, there's blocks of hours that we're paying for more than what we need. Could we, with the Azure SQL database, get away with scaling it down during periods of time? And we did do that pretty easily, actually, by using some PowerShell in the Azure automation service and its scheduler we schedule it so that weekends or off periods, the Azure SQL database auto-scales down to a lower pricing tier, which cuts down on the, the customer's runtime costs. And of course, that discount gets passed on to his customers as well. So it's a win-win situation. Well,
0: that's that's really interesting, the way that you're mm-hmm. dynamically moving the Azure SQL uh, between database tiers. yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it, is it using, uh, I know there's so many different ways you can do Azure mm-hmm. SQL now. They've mm-hmm. got the just straight DTUs and then there's yeah. an elastic DTUs for pools mm-hmm. of databases. So for, mm-hmm. for listeners who aren't familiar, you can have a, uh, all of your databases can share a pool of database transaction units, um, for consumption. And now they just have core based, I think, uh, licensing where you can just say, no, I just want, you know, X number of cores for this SQL server deployment. Yeah. Um, so which which model did you end up going with, and, and how are you scaling in terms of, of tiers?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something else I put in my notes to follow up with, <laughs> with this company about that newest model, pricing model. I mean, I mentioned the elastic pool option, mm-hmm. but I hope, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I was concerned about multi-tenancy because these are separate customers. I was concerned and he was concerned that when he makes his proposal pitches, that if he if he was using Elastic Pool, that a business that could be a deal breaker potentially, if they say, oh, well, our database is going to be pooled with other customers' databases. Just on its face, if I were an IT person and I didn't know a whole lot about Azure, I would be potentially very concerned You know, depending upon the the data that's stored in the database. Right. So we the idea of elastic pool, although it's a cost savings for security reasons, we dismissed it at that time, and instead just did the straight database transaction unit or DTU. Okay. So during business hours, it runs at X S X or whatever. Higher level of service, and then based on time and day, all of that is in plural in plural site in PowerShell <laughs> code in an Azure Automation Runbook. Okay, when the time comes, the database gets scaled down, and and it just works. Interesting, works like clockwork, as it were.
0: Well, I would hope so, <laughs> since it's on a clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to see if uh, you could do something similar by monitoring the performance demands on Mm -hmm. the database and Mm -hmm. scaling it down based on that. But I guess since you you have a very predictable uh, peaks and valleys of of activity, you can really just schedule it out.
1: Yeah, exactly. But your point is certainly well taken for 24-7 shops. A better metric rather than straight time, in fact, you probably wouldn't be able to use straight time, would be to use another metric, like you said. I agree.
0: Uh, yeah. So on the app service side, is that also scaling in in sort of a dynamic way, or is that relatively static? Because I know that the tiers are a little more hard and fast.
1: with Right. With that. Yeah. In that case, no. In that case, there there is much less flexibility to be able to scale up and down because, you know, again to this. Um, developers great credit he really he's an Azure evangelist now <laughs> he is all about Azure so all in. And he's, he's like us he's an autodidact so he was up all night studying and practicing so he's flexing app services muscles so we have limited ability to scale down because he's actually taking advantage of the auto backup and blah, 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 all these additional features. And again, sure, good for him. Kudos for him for for really diving in. Because you know that old saw about the Microsoft Office applications, 90% of users used no more than 10% of the features. This particular customer is an exception to that with Azure. <laughs> He's the 10%, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it used to be the 80-20 rule. Uh, but I think with, yeah, with Office, it's 90-10. And what's funny yeah. is the the 90% that only use 10%, they all use a different 10%, which is why there's so <laughs> many different features. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so I think we're getting close to wrap-up time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could kind of... Uh, gel together just a few lessons learned in this whole process Uh, what what would you pick out of of uh, this whole project
1: in this case study the big highlights that jump out are don't just go to vms and infrastructure as a service because that's what's always done really give a hard look at platform services and whether they're a better fit for your workload Mm-hmm. Another lesson is understand and accept and embrace the fact that the cloud is a different paradigm from on-prem. kind of ties into my first lesson. So it's going to definitely involve skilling up and staying current. I mean, look at this. we In our discussion today, I thought I was current with this case study, and now I have two um, punch list items to go <laughs> fetch. So yeah. I mean, you're always learning. Always. And I guess finally… Um, don't be too proud to seek the help of an expert, of a consultant, of an, an, a friend or colleague who's been there and done that. Because the stakes, I think, are too high in the public cloud that a misconfiguration or an unwise default could have really bad impacts on your business. And, and you want to remediate that
0: yeah, absolutely. sooner rather than later. Yeah, you can. Uh, the, the blast radius can be much bigger.
1: Right. <laughs> well sure. said. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, so, Tim, uh, wrapping up, if people want to know about more about you, where can they find you? Where can they follow you?
1: Sure thing. My Twitter handle is Tech Trainer Tim, and my personal website is the same domain, techtrainertim.com. And you can look me up on LinkedIn if you want. Or um, if you're interested in my Pluralsight training, just look up my name at Pluralsight.com. Got a whole bunch of courses. And speaking of which, Ned, I'm very interested in your Terraform work. And I'll be studying (laughs) that today because that technology is really interesting to me. Especially, uh, you've obviously compared and contrasted it with Azure Resource Manager templates, pro and con. I don't know if you get into that as such, do you?
0: Uh, not in the course, but if you want to have a conversation about with, about that, I'm more than happy to. Uh, Sweet. It's, they're complimentary to a certain degree, oddly yeah. enough. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Very cool. Good to yeah. hear.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for appearing on Day 2 Cloud and... Thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe and let me know on Twitter, Ned1313. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.